0: Good afternoon. Welcome to COVID Lawcast. Today we have Ron Baruti from New Jersey, but also practicing in many other states. And Ron and I cross paths because of the work with the COVID mandates. And Ron, why don't you tell people what your history has been and how you came to get in this type of litigation?
1: Yeah. Thanks, Warner. It's kind of a very open-ended question, so I'm going to give you uh, the answer that I want to give. The, the, the short answer, the short part of the answer is on January 1st, 2022, my partner and I, Gwyneth Marie Nolan, left our safe positions as equity partners in the big New Jersey law firm, and we went out on our own because we wanted to handle cases that implicated liberty issues, loss of liberty that people were facing with vaccines, masks, critical race theory, things like that, and we're taking on all these types of cases. Prior to that, I had filed on September 8th, 2021, a 13th, excuse me, um, case against uh, New York City Mayor de Blasio and the city of New York with respect to the vaccine mandate that they had, whereby every single person over the age of 16, I think it was, had to show a vaccine card and ID to get into any restaurant, bar, gym. You know, all the cultural things that make New York so appealing to people were basically being precluded to those who who were not vaccinated. And a number of restaurant owners retained me and gyms and individuals. The case still is pending. A uh, very compelling group of, of plaintiffs, including a, a couple of people who were told by their doctors, if you get vaccinated, you will die or likely die, I should say. And uh, we proceeded to to seek an injunction against the mandate. Uh, and-
0: how, how did that injunction hearing go, by the way? Well,
1: it so just like I'm hearing pretty much in most jurisdictions around the country, there you know there are a few exceptions that we know about out of Texas and in Florida, um, and maybe I think Kentucky has one. But <clears throat> we were denied the preliminary restraints very quickly and we went up to the second circuit court of appeals on an emergent basis second circuit then slow walked us through the emergent appeal process and we filed a couple of motions to try to expedite the process and they still put the brakes on and the city uh, I, I had my brief filed within you know a couple of days i was ready to go and the city slow walked it into february of this year at which time, of course, we had already left our firm and started our new firm. So what was interesting, I like to take a little credit for it. So the, the city of New York had a couple of different vaccine mandates. It had one with respect to teachers, with respect to public workers. And one of them also was the sports teams. And so they were talking at the spring training. I'm a big baseball fan, Mets fan. Let's go Mets they were talking about how home team players were not going to be able, if they're not vaccinated, they would not be able to play the home games. Right. So put, put, put that on the shelf for a second. I filed my reply brief in the second circuit with respect to the restaurants. And I, I thought we were going to win. I, I thought we, I thought we absolutely had a slam dunk win that the mayor had no, no legal authority to do what he did. And I thought we also had a great case that, under federal law, these are emergency use authority vaccines, and I can prove there are no or very, very few available non-emergency use authority vaccines. So pretty much everything is an emergency use under special statutory protection.
0: Yeah, just to be clear to the audience that may not know this, but the federal government websites say that Comirnaty and spike backs are not being distributed in the United States, and Pfizer has made a public statement that it will not be producing Combinati for the United States. So, you know, we get pushback in a lot of our cases about whether or not they're available. And I have to rehash that point over and over again. And I hate to say this, but not always successfully, even though this is, these are public statements by Pfizer and the FDA. The only thing available are these emergency use authorized shots.
1: And that's important because
0: What emergency use means is that
1: it hasn't gone through the the, the normal process, which takes years to, to get approved. And they rush these things out because of a public health emergency. And you can't blame them for trying to do something uh, to help the emergency, but it became pretty quickly apparent that the vaccines were not everything they were cracked up to be. And they're not even vaccines under the traditional definition. And as time went on, we have experts, including one who went through the phase three studies that were conducted by Pfizer, Moderna, and Johnson & Johnson with respect to their EUO um, vaccines. And the greatest, uh, and this is something that went into my papers in New York, the, I mean, it's really a scam in in my view. The government would tell you that these things were 93% effective, 94% effective, 86% effective, but they came up with these Numbers and who wouldn't want to get a 96 or 94 or 90, whatever it is, a vaccine that was so effective? I mean, why not? Makes sense, right? Well, uh, our expert digs into the numbers, and there are two different ways to measure success. They had about 40,000 participants, and the way they ran the study was 20,000 participants were injected with the Pfizer shot, and 20,000 were given a placebo. And then after two weeks, they tested everybody and they made a determination as to how many of those people who received the Pfizer shot came down with uh, symptoms of COVID, tested positive, which means actually just tested positive for SARS-2, not even COVID, which is the virus that causes COVID. It's like HIV and AIDS. You can have HIV, but not get AIDS. You can have SARS-2, but not get COVID. And compare that to the number of people after two weeks, from the placebo group who came down with a positive test. And so the numbers were something like nine people out of the Pfizer group tested positive, nine out of 20,000, all right. But the percentage of people who were placebo was maybe like 43 people who tested positive. So to get the relative risk reduction, the way the math is done is They take 43 people in the placebo group who tested positive after two weeks only. It doesn't go three weeks. It doesn't go four weeks. It's after you get your second shot, 43 people or something like this. And they take that 43 and they use that as a denominator. And then they take 43, which is the number of placebo, and they subtract the number nine from it, which is the number of Pfizer. And they go, okay, 43 minus nine equals 34. They put 34 over 43, and they come up with a percentage, and that is the relative risk reduction. Relative to the placebo group, this is a percentage of people who received a benefit, a relative benefit versus placebo. That's the relative risk reduction. Now, in 2017, the FDA put out proposed guidance for drug companies, and the proposed guidance for drug companies was something to the effect that. If you're going to advertise the benefit of your drug in terms of the percentages, you should use actual risk reduction and not relative risk reduction as the truth in advertising number. And if you're going to use relative risk reduction, you should compare it to actual risk reduction Mm. because it gives the people a truer sense of how effective the drug really is on a scientific basis. Well... What is the actual risk reduction? And this is a mind blow. The actual risk reduction number, what you do is you take the number nine, the number of people who are benefited, who obviously came down with a sort of test, and you put it over the number 20,000, which was the total number of people who received the shot. And this is the actual benefit. These are the only nine people out of 20,000 actually, or 36 people out of 20, so again, it's 43 minus nine. So you take that number 30, 43, if you get 43. A, it
0: people, ends up being about a 1% 30. risk reduction.
1: It's it's less. And under Pfizer, it was something like 0.88. Under Moderna, it was something like 1.14. And I think Johnson & Johnson had two different ways you could measure it, giving them the benefit of the doubt. It was somewhere like 1.8. Yeah. So if if they were if they were telling people, hey, you have a chance, you have a 0.88 chance of having a benefit from this shot. Who's going to get that shot?
0: Nobody. Nobody. Right. Nobody.
1: You have a 1.88 chance of this experimental vaccine, which will alter your genetics. Who's going to do that? Nobody. So that's what the numbers showed. And we, we put this all in front of the court. and We have it before the Second Circuit Court of Appeals. And that's our second argument that EUA vaccines require Because it's EUA, there is a informed consent provision that permits any person offered an EUA product to say no after informed consent. And what it also provides under the statute is that if you say no, sorry, there's a regulation that goes with it. And under the regulation, it says if you say no, there can be no punishment. Right. So one of the great mysteries of the fallout from all of this in this country. You see a lot of different polls and studies. I haven't seen yet the poll or the study that showed how many people lost their jobs because they refused to take this EUA vaccine. But I'm quite confident it's in the millions of Americans who are punished for not getting this vaccine. And I believe in my heart that one day I'm going to get this issue or someone's going to get this issue before the United States Supreme Court. And the United States Supreme Court is going to look at the statutory language and read in its plain writing about informed consent, and if we can show that there are only EUA vaccines available and that there can be no punishment. And there are going to be millions of people who are going to have lawsuits against their employers, against the government, or all the people who got shots because they didn't want them, but they got them because they felt they had to, to save their jobs. They were coerced into getting shots. And my ultimate goal, Warner, is that we win such a case, and it opens the floodgates of litigation across the country, and that people sue for this awful, awful thing that's happened in our country, where we're being pushed into accepting experimental vaccines that don't work, for the most part. And they're ineffective, by the way, for the most part. Right. As of June thirteenth, there were 15,066 reports to the CDC of people who died. From receiving the vaccine. And that's flat out right on the CDC VAR's website. 15,066 as of June 13th.
0: And that number and, is just the United States. There are and that's,
1: others. And it's this it's, slide. it's always presumed that it's underreported. Yeah. But let's just take them out there. Let's just take the number at its If there are 15,066 people dying from the vaccine, why is it available? Why is it how is it safe? Yeah. And we know everyone can spread it. We know everyone can get it. So how's it effective?
0: So I, I like think that's for the audience to know. I mean, the underreporting rate for this bears platform is up to a hundred times. I mean, there's a various estimates about the real number of deaths. And I think it ranges from about 150,000 to 400,000 dead from the shots. Right. Columbia University did a study on that and they came out with a number of 187,000 dead from the shot. So that is probably a light figure. And that was six months ago. So it is is growing, definitely, especially as the boosters come on.
1: Let's litigate in the most conservative fashion possible. And let's take the CDC at its word. And let's say that it's 15,066, which we all know is a very low number. Right. If if you follow this stuff, you know it's a low number, but we don't have to talk about that. 15,066 in one year, in the Vietnam War, which lasted, what, 12 years? We lost 60,000 people. Right. So we're talking about a quarter of the Vietnam War in a year from the vaccine, if you want to put it in, in real perspective here. So anyway, we're up the Second Circuit, and the reason for my story is that just before, uh, just after I briefed my, my reply brief, and I thought I was going to win. So after I filed my reply brief, lo and behold, the city of New York drops its, man, its vaccine mandate and they argue to the second circuit, the issue is moot. Right. There's no more mandate. There's nothing for the court to decide. So what I did, and they argue that this will never happen again. It's just something that, you know, it was a one-off thing because of the situation at the time. And, and I responded, I said, no judge, that's not the case because right now there's another mandate based upon the same criteria. And it's actually in the newspapers and I posted a link to the New York Post, that baseball players who are from the home team are not going to be able to play because they're not vaccinated. Same thing. Well, don't you know, a couple of days later, what happens? They made a special exception for baseball players, and they, <laughs> they don't have to be vaccinated. So <clears throat> I didn't win at the appellate level yet. Um, but I do feel that maybe I had a little something to do with two of these mandates being lifted.
0: I think that's right. I think that's one of the really important things about people who are contemplating bringing lawsuits about this issue is that your lawsuit has an impact way beyond, you know, just what happens in that lawsuit. And even though it may be mooted out or something else, and mooting means that there's no longer an active controversy because they've withdrawn the mandate, for example, in New York City, like what happened with you. But it has this broad impact, and we, we've seen that in our cases as well with universities. All Ohio universities, you know, and the, the public universities have dropped their mandates at this point, but we're arguing the same thing. where are you know, they're saying, well, now it's moot. We dropped the mandate, but the problem is they claimed the power, and they haven't said to us... We're relinquishing that power, and we're sorry. We should never have utilized it, and we'll never utilize it again. They're reserving the right to utilize the power specifically. And they will use it. Yep.
1: And they will. Once they have the power, it's the the history of uh, government and mankind. Once the government has the power, it never relinquishes it. You know, this is what revolutions are about. The king of England felt that he could tax people and, and, and cut off their harbors and their trade, and, you know, he could do
0: that. What's your portfolio of lawsuits right now?
1: So we don't only do vaccine cases. We also do masking cases. I just filed a critical race theory case, which has gotten some press attention. Or not critical race theory, but anti-racism. It's blatant discrimination, vocal out, out there, discrimination. That's no. called a civil rights case, really. But we have a few people we filed suits or are preparing to file suits who've been terminated for vaccine refusal. Uh, and we have a few masking cases as well, one of which involves my partner who was arrested for not wearing a mask at a school board meeting. He's the only person in New Jersey who was arrested at a school board meeting. And
0: you know. And that's that's Mary thing. who was arrested. Yeah. Oh yeah. my gosh. And she's an attorney. <laughs> yeah. It's a damn
1: good one too, I
0: tell you. Oh, oh my goodness. Well, you raise the issue of revolution. Something has really gone wrong, and we've seen government at local, state, and federal levels exceed its bounds in every way. We're supposed to be a government of limited powers. From the president on down, every government, including your local health department, city council, or school board, seems to be going beyond its bounds. I'm curious to know what you're finding out in the public. But I do feel like in Ohio, we have had a massive awakening among the citizens. We've had numerous, particularly mothers, run for school board, get elected, you know, fight these mask mandates, fight quarantine rules, and it's going to change our politics. I think this election coming up is going to show that dramatically. What are you seeing in terms of the political movement and the uh, citizen activity? Well I think they're, they're two separate issues in a way, although they shouldn't they shouldn't be. I've appeared at a
1: couple of local school board meetings, and to your point about our government, the way it's supposed to work, I've spoken to our local school board and I said, look, we have this system of government, this brilliant system of government where the founding fathers decided that the most powerful people in government are supposed to be those who are closest to the people. And that means the school board, who is closest to the people, they are our neighbors, they're our friends. They're the people we see at the diner or whatever else. And they're the ones who are supposed to be making the policy and fighting for us. And when they see that from up above things are going wrong, it's their duty to protect us and to fight back against those who would be some would call it tyrannical in their in their behavior. Taking power that they don't have. What's happened nationally and dates back to the nineteen early it dates back to Teddy Roosevelt, probably or it dates back to the Civil War, depending on who you talk to. I believe it dates back to Teddy Roosevelt. Our government has become a top-down model of government, and we've now reached the stage where the model is that there are political parties that control agendas and the party in power will control the agenda all the way from the top down to the bottom and it's really the exact extreme opposite of where our government is supposed to be based upon the constitutional order that was set up in 1789 and post-civil war as well so when the school boards now are largely taking orders from above And they are in New Jersey, they are so incredibly out of control for the most part, whereby they mandate masks, they have all sorts of uh, rules to punish the unvaccinated, they're they're putting in anti-racism stuff, which is blatantly racist, they're doing the sex ed standards in New Jersey, I mean, they're just absolutely atrocious with the things they're teaching five year old children, the transgender rules where they're separating the children literally from the parents and saying, but you could be called Susie at school, uh, even though you're Johnny at home and, and we're not gonna tell your parents, your parents aren't allowed to, know, And if your parents object to it, it's too bad. They can't do anything about it. We're talking young, young, young children. We're being literally being taken away from their parents in a in a very material way. And we will be fighting that in New Jersey in the coming months, I'm pretty sure, my firm. Meanwhile, on the other side, the parents, are freaking out (laughs) you're going to have your vocal allies of the movement but most people are pretty stable normal neutral people who don't want all of this nonsense but they also tend to go to work and and not pay attention and and, and stay home so we used to be a small group of activists though i think it's growing because parents are really starting to see how this stuff is affecting their children their child relations, I'm getting calls all the time from people who don't know what to do. They don't know where to turn. And some have had devastating issues with their children based upon the transgender rules, for instance. Some have been physically assaulted in bathrooms, had kids physically assaulted in bathrooms. And because of the political dynamics of the people involved, the kids go unpunished. And I had one nine-year-old child was told by another kid who was bigger who I think it was a boy who was transitioning, but there was an issue where the kid went into the girl's bathroom and I don't know, said that he was gonna rape the girl. And the girl, nine-year-old girl didn't even know what that meant. It's really messed up. Governor Yunkin's win in Virginia was huge. And that was a, a really big step, I think, towards starting to take some of these states and, and local governments back one by one, but it's a process.
0: I think that's interesting because even Jacobson, the decision they all rely on to say they can do this, Jacobson's about its local power. It's yes. not, it was not federal power. And we draw that distinction quite a bit. And We've noticed the ESSER funds are what seem to be driving the school board. So the funding comes down from the federal government. And we've got local school districts here in Ohio that have taken hundreds of millions of dollars. And to take those funds, they've all signed off on the CDC guidelines. And they have certified to the federal government when they take those funds, they will follow CDC guidelines. And as a result, we've had school board members just stare at us with blank stares because there's no way they're gonna do anything to jeopardize the hundreds of millions of dollars that they've taken for their school district and that they're happy to spend. So just so people understand money's driving the behavior and and it's destroying this connection that we had with our local leadership. They are absolutely ignoring citizens and and moms and dads. True, all true. So I'm trying to think back to my question.
1: Your last question to me is how do I see with parents and local local people running? I think people are also running for office. You know, every state's a little bit different. New Jersey is a very blue state and it's very controlled by one party. And uh, people have a lot of questions about the integrity of some of these things. And uh, what I'm seeing a lot of also, and um, i got a case in New York too, where Homeland Security was actually called an apparent. But I was seeing it where school boards and superintendents seem to be acting as an advocacy group and seeking to punish. Parents who dissent in very material ways. So I just mentioned a parent who had Homeland Security called. Uh, this particular parent has been banned from school premises for checking up on her child. That's all she did. She's going video. She didn't do anything wrong. They called Homeland Security on her, who came and there are other parents. A lot of people are being contacted by superintendents who are scouring Facebook pages and saying you're providing misinformation and all this other stuff. And wait a minute, you, you work for us. Who are you to tell me what I can and can't write and what I can and can't say? And if it's misinformation. You're, you're, you're my employee. But it's not like that anymore. You know, these people are radicalized and they are advocates for these things that they believe, which many of us would say are kooky concepts that are very unnatural and un-American in terms of the the lack of public debate and and openness with the way they're handling it. And they are guarding these things jealously. And, And my belief is that there are only two ways to handle these things. And there's the ballot box, which I think a lot of people would believe is becoming increasingly difficult way to do things because I think a lot of people have some legitimate concerns about election integrity. That's another story for another day. And the other way is the courts. And that's what I'm doing. And that's what you're doing. And I think that this is maybe the most effective way to try to tackle these issues. And we don't know if we're going to win, lose, draw. We don't know. Because a lot of these are things coming up for the first time and and they're they're new issues. And we we may not win, but we're certainly going to take our shot because if we don't take our shot in the courts, there's nowhere else to shoot. There's nowhere else to, there's nothing else to do. Save the things that we think are precious beyond the, the ballot box in the courthouse. There's just and not
0: I think one of the things that we need to emphasize to people and the public too. I mean, the courts have been very effective. I mean, they've rolled back the OSHA mandate. There were three issues at the Supreme Court. Two out of the three were rolled back. The only one that stayed was CMS, the CMS mandate. And I think everybody who listened to that argument who understood what the facts on the ground were. I think we were all surprised that the justices were not in touch with actual facts. I remember some numbers that were being quoted that were just simply wrong, and they were being quoted by the justices. So I was really surprised by that. There were certain justices who came across to me as being pure
1: advocates for positions that were not things that were in the record. They just started saying things and quoting numbers that were just incorrect, False. as you said. and. and they ended up prevailing. The fact is, is that the swing vote on that was Brett Kavanaugh. Yeah. Kavanaugh swung on this on, on that particular issue. He was on one side on one issue, on the other side on the other issue. But that's really, that's really the swing. But some of what I saw as advocacy from the bench was pretty alarming.
0: My point is, though, there are so many winning cases around the country as well. And even cases that end up being called moot are essentially a win because the institution is backed down. And I would actually venture to say there's been more success in the courts than failure overall in this, in the hundreds of cases that have been brought. I don't know if you see that as well. I think there's a a tremendous amount of
1: frustration among the practitioners who are practicing this. And look, you know, Warner, I mean, there are very few people in our whole country who are are doing this stuff. I mean, we're a small group of people. And I I do sense a lot of frustration among some of the people because the courts really have slow walked a lot of these issues. I'm a big civil war guy. It's like the mud march, Burnside's mud march. It's just, you're just stuck in the mud and you're trying to trudge through and you're getting stuck and you can't move. And it's very frustrating for me. As frustrating as it is, as I said, and as you mentioned, I think that we had some wins kind of quietly. I, I intend fully to, in my vaccine case in New York, my clients are committed to going to the United States Supreme Court if we can. So we get, we're get we back down to the state trial court level, and there's a motion to dismiss, and who knows what's going to happen. Let's say we lose. So we go back up to the Second Circuit again, and we go through the appeal process. And when that goes on, we file for certiorari, or the other side files for certiorari, hopefully.
0: And uh, maybe the Supreme court will look at it and say, we need to resolve some of these issues. We have two on appeal right now, federally. So we're, we're down at the sixth circuit here in Ohio, but we just appealed our Smuckers case. And we're saying essentially that Smuckers was standing in the shoes of the federal government when it imposed its mandates. And the judge said, it's moot. They had dropped their mandates actually this spring, but I think they did it in part because of our lawsuit. So, They first started with the executives and then they were going to put it on the shop floor. I think those executives who took the hit on this, 20 of them were fired. The 20 executives who stood up, I mean, here's what they did. They stood up and said, we're not taking the shot. Oh. And they got fired. Oh, the good guys. The good guys got fired. But it saved 2,000 floor workers from having to be under mandate. I'm sure some of them got the shot on their own, but at least they weren't mandated. So we're helping out the administrative level people who were fired over this. And that is now on appeal at the Sixth Circuit. Well, you you got them out of a jam. Yeah, yeah. And we've got another got them out of a jam. Well, you know, it's interesting what's happening. I mean, because one of the pilots quit because he wasn't going to take the shot because the other pilot for their corporate jets took the shot and then was grounded. They have planes at Smuckers. It's a big defense contractor, federal contractor, by the way. And then the other thing that's happened—the people they fired—it's messed up their quality control. And I, I think you may have seen that Jeff Peanut Butter is on recall now. Yeah. So they're, they they fired the wrong people. And then the other thing that I think seems to be happening is this purge. It's a purge of of the conservative and religious viewpoint across our institutions. And the military, I know we have military pilots grounded too, but you're really purging corporate and and military and university of all the right-wing conservatives. And we're really limiting the voices in all of our major institutions. What do you think about that purge that seems to be happening? I think
1: that, um, I think it's obvious that what's happening. I think it's obvious that we now largely have a, a legal system that is two-tiered. One if you're conservative and one if you're not conservative. And I think that it's much easier to terminate conservative people. It's much easier to discriminate against conservative people. It's much easier to discriminate against religious people, particular Christians. It's much easier to do all these things because justice doesn't seem to work in favor of conservatives, at least at the lower levels. I'm banking on the Supreme court and, and maybe, I mean, six circuits, you got a good circuit. You got some nice judges there. I'm banking on some of these circuit courts and, and the Supreme court to start taking things in hand. I have no other choice, right? There's no, there's no other choice. It's that right. or elections. There really isn't. Right. Uh, so it's, it's pretty bad. Yeah.
0: Well, let's go ahead and wrap this up. Is there anything else you would like to say to somebody who is listening to you? Today. Is there something in particular, some point in particular you'd like to make beyond the wonderful ones you've made so far?
1: Thank you. And, and really I thank you very much for having me. This is a it's a nice the, the thing I, I tell people when I get a lot of calls and parents, families, they have budgets. And like school boards and corporations, they really don't have budgets, not in the sense that, that we're used to. We're trying to put our kids to college or you know, private school maybe or trying to pay the car off or pay for the lake house or whatever it is, or pay our mortgage, pay our bills from inflation, forget about it, you buy food, you know, whatever it is. And and our kids are facing and our, and our parents are facing issues where these well represented and well-funded quote unquote betters, government, employers, whatever they are, are taking actions that violate basic constitutional rights. And it's really, really hard to say I'm going to take money out of my budget to fight this but if we want to save our country and I say that in all sincerity my my grandfather escaped communism in 1948 with my mom and family on board and he he risked everything to be free everything precious to him he risked he, if they was caught they would have killed them he risked everything precious to be free and and it's so meaningful to me that we live in, I was raised and born in a free country and we're losing that. We're very rapidly losing that. And if we want to save this free country, we we need to step up and make these sacrifices and make these choices. I think that the greatest thing to do is to punch the bully in the nose. If you can get up, file a lawsuit, make the allegations about how heinous these acts are of these people, they suddenly have to face the consequences of their action. And we file federally. I don't believe in state court in New Jersey. I don't think we'll ever win in state court in New Jersey. So we try to file federally, because we're try, we're trying to shoot every case toward the United States Supreme Court with the hope that one of these shots on goals or two of these shots on goals will score. And we'll get up there and we'll get to make our argument. And we believe that unless and until these cases get up there, they, they must be fought or we're going to lose. And that includes hopefully taking depositions, making these people cross-examining these people, finding out their backgrounds, finding out who's behind them, making them suffer the consequences of their actions so that they feel if we're ever going to do this again, maybe we ought to do it with some more care and consideration for the people we represent, the people we employ, et cetera. And that's what I'm fighting to do every day. And my partner, we're fighting to do that every day. We work with clients. We You know, we we can't work for free just it's not possible. But we try to work with people on rates and and try to make special deals with them and and do the things we can to try to somehow or other make it somewhat affordable for them to bring these cases because it's so important to, as you said, the impact of these cases, far exceeds the impact of just the one case it has sometimes national, sometimes international implications. And that's what we have to do and that's my statement for for whoever's listening, to, to please. Do what you can to, to try to bring these cases and, and protect your rights because it's for your children. It's truly for your children and grandchildren's future.
0: Well, Ron, I can't thank you enough for talking to me this afternoon. If you guys want to find Ron, he's at Murray-NolanBurudy.com. murray -nolanbrudy.com And and Ron, you practice anywhere in the United States. It's it's about the case, correct? Yeah. So
1: actually I have a case in Ohio right now. We have a couple of cases in, in California pending child issues where one parent wants to have the child vaccinated. The other one doesn't. That's my partner handles the family law. I've practiced nationally for a long time nationally in that I'm admitted to the New York, New Jersey and Kentucky bars. I'm a member of the sixth circuit court of appeals. We will pr- practice with local counsel. Uh, they call pro ProHoc and uh, Local councils will sponsor us and we'll basically run with the run with the the, the case. So here I am. Come find me. Well, MarinoBeruti.com. Marino M-U-R-R-A-Y hyphen N-O-L-A-N-B-E-R-U-T-T-I.com.
0: Well, thank you. And when you're in Ohio, let me know. Whatever you need in Ohio, we're willing to help you guys out, of course. Uh,
1: thank you so much. And if we could do anything for you, the same. We're, we're all on the same team here.
0: Right. And, and we, we have to win. All right. And we will. I think we will. I'm sure we will at this point.